Hi everyone, welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. California schools and businesses could open up more next week when California redefines the red tier. We'll talk to reporter Paul Sisson about that. We'll also talk to Lisa Dedrick, the UT's social justice columnist, about what drives her coverage. First, the news. San Diego County built the most homes in Southern California in 2020 during a pandemic that shuttered much of the economy. There were 9,486 homes constructed in 2020, up 18% from 2019, said Real Estate Research Council of Southern California. San Diego real estate analyst Gary London said the region should be building up to 20,000 homes a year to keep up with demand. San Diego Unified's Junipero Serra High School will now be called Canyon Hills High School after students successfully petitioned for the name change. The students said the name of the founder of California's mission system is offensive to indigenous peoples whose ancestors were subjected to its doctrine. On Tuesday night, the San Diego Unified School Board voted unanimously to change the school's name and its mascot from a conquistador to a rattlesnake. Local indigenous leaders praised the name change and said it will bring healing to the Kumeyaay and other First Peoples. San Diego is increasing the use of nighttime curfews to curb crime, drug use, and vandalism in city parks. The City Council's Public Safety Committee approved curfews Wednesday for Fanuel Park, Pacific Beach Library Park, and the Mission Bay Athletic Area. If the curfews get final approval from the City Council this spring, San Diego will have doubled the number of parks with curfews from 8 to 16 in two years. San Diego County's coronavirus case rate this week is 8.8 per 100,000 residents. That's down from 34.2 per 100,000 a month ago. The case rate isn't low enough for the county to dip into the red tier, which would allow some schools and businesses to reopen indoors, but the state may soon redefine the tiers, and under the new terms, San Diego would qualify. UT healthcare reporter Paul Sisson joins us. Paul, the state is planning to redefine the red tier. Why are they doing it, and what should we know about it? Right. The, uh, the state is... Uh working to redefine the red tier uh, because we now have vac- vaccines in the community and uh, that's you know, really a game changer. I mean, uh, as more and more people get vaccinated, uh, the ability for the vaccine to transmit in the community uh, decreases. Uh, and, and their existing tier system was dreamed up back in the fall when there were no vaccines. Uh, so now what they need to do is make some adjustments to, uh, to account for the fact that uh, even if we have more cases, uh, the, the likelihood of transmission is lower with vaccines. So, so what they're doing is they're, they're making a slight adjustment, uh, moving the, the red tier uh, threshold from seven to 10 cases per 100,000 once they have distributed at least 2 million vaccines to the uh, neighborhoods across the, street, the, the state that have the, uh, the most uh, economic uh, disadvantage. And so once the levels are changed, it is expected that we'll reach the red tier next week. Is that right? Yeah, that's currently uh, the suspicion is that they will hit that 2 million mark and then they'll make the adjustment from 7 to 10. Uh, We were at 8.8 this week and the thought is we'll probably be at least that good next week. So then that'll be two weeks in a row under 10. So we should move forward to the red tier on Wednesday, St. Patrick's Day. So we'll all have a little uh, something extra to celebrate on St. Patty's, <laughs> Patty's Day this year, I guess, hopefully. Yeah, we hope so. So what all will reopen? 
all kinds of things. Um, you know, those of you who like to go out to eat, uh, you should be able to start eating uh, in, inside your favorite restaurants again, rather than out in the parking lot. Although restaurants are only allowed to go up to 25% occupancy indoors. So it's still not a huge percentage. Uh, I think a lot of people still are going to be relatively unhappy that it's not more indoor city. Um, uh, and then, you know, schools as well, the upper grades really are not allowed to begin significant reopening. Uh, we're talking middle and, and high school uh, until their counties are in the red tier. Uh, so for so for anybody with kids, uh, getting into the red tier is a really big deal. It means a greater level of school reopening. Um, and then as of April 1st, uh, opening day for the Padres, uh, uh, sports teams and uh, and uh, concert venues are allowed to bring uh, additional fans into the stands. Um, again, not a huge percentage, uh, just uh, 15% for uh, like outdoor music venues, um, uh, but a larger percentage, 20% for uh, outdoor sporting teams like the Padres. So uh, it should mean fans in the stands uh, for opening day, which is... Uh, if you've been following the Padres, uh, a pretty big deal in this town. Mm -hmm. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine has also just arrived in San Diego. What do we need to know about its rollout? Where will it be? Will people be able to request that one if they want it? Uh, you know, the number of doses remains pretty limited. They've gotten about 15,000 in San Diego County this week. Uh, they started yesterday with vaccinating uh homeless folks, uh, you know, at the, the area's uh, largest uh, shelter. They're also uh, working uh, with farm workers and others. It, it seems like they're really using uh, Johnson & Johnson doses uh, in situations where they might have trouble finding people for a second dose. So I think at the moment and probably for the next month or so, you're going to see those doses somewhat reserved and allocated for special situations where you want to be able to get get somebody fully vaccinated in just one dose, as as you may recall, uh, Johnson and Johnson is the first single dose vaccine. The, the other two uh, that are already out uh, require a second uh, booster shot, 21 or 28 days after the first. You've been following this situation um, very closely for over a year now, or about a year now. Um, how optimistic should we be? How optimistic are you that we might be nearing the end of the pandemic? I'm optimistic. Um, you know, I've covered a lot of different types of infectious disease over the years, uh, and, and the flu is a, probably a pretty good example. You know, the, the flu vaccine changes every year, and um, it's often not very effective in terms of preventing you from getting infected. Uh, some years we, we find out that the flu vaccine was only something like 40% effective uh, at, at keeping people from actually getting infected after they get their flu shot. Um, but what the studies have pretty consistently shown over time is that the flu vaccine is pretty good at keeping you from getting severe illness and ending up in the hospital or dying. Um, even though the, the strains that are in the vaccine may not be a perfect match for what you end up getting, they're close enough that you get a fair amount of protection uh, that, that allows your body to fight it off without having severe illness. Um, and the scientists think that that's going to be the case for the, these coronavirus uh, vaccines as well. Um, you know, we have these new variants popping up uh, that, that are coming from the UK. 
uh, and from Brazil and from uh, South Africa. And, um, and they do look like uh, they might not be as fully uh, blocked by the vaccine as those that, we, that are already in, in circulation and have been for the last year. But, uh, but there is a fair amount of feeling that, yeah, they are going to take the edge off. They're going to significantly reduce the amount of hospitalization, hospitalization that we see and the amount of death that we see. And um, I think a lot of people maybe forget this, but the whole point of all of, all of these shutdowns and, and uh, you know, uh, social distancing and mask wearing and, and, and all of the uh, public health effort that we've just been through, the whole point of that was to keep uh, coronavirus from overwhelming our healthcare capacity. The thing that we could not allow to happen was the, that hospitals would become so overwhelmed like they did in Italy in the spring, for example, uh, that that people were dying in their homes uh, of causes other than, than COVID because all of the beds were full uh, with COVID patients. Um, so, so if you can turn this uh, virus into a to a situation that doesn't produce an overwhelming amount of severe healthcare problems, uh, then you should really, you, you really will have turned a corner and you'll be able to start getting back to something that looks like normal, I think. Um, I think just the idea here is that we don't really need to prevent cases. We can still have cases. We just need to take the edge off the severity, you know, the, the small percentage of people who end up in respiratory distress and in an ICU bed. Uh, you know, we just, if, we, if, if this vaccine can just take the edge off enough to prevent that from bec becoming so common as it was, I think uh, we really will have turned a corner. Now let's turn to opinion. Lisa Dedrick is a columnist at the Union Tribune. She has two weekend columns, one on Saturday called One on One, where she talks to interesting San Diegans, and another on Sunday where she writes about social justice. Lisa, in your one on one column, you talk to activists, academics, volunteers. How do you go about choosing people to highlight? Uh, there are a combination of ways. Um, I will definitely hear from people in the community. They'll email um, to let me know about people whose work they're familiar with. And so I'll take that information and do a little digging around to see if what that person does seems like a good fit. Um, and then I spend a lot of time just like combing through um, different stories online sometimes. Um, and when I was still doing the event listings, I got a lot of ideas through the event listings because what ends up happening is there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of like altruistic kind of work in their community. And that's what I lean more toward in the one-on-one -on -one space. Um, I try to avoid anything that will come across as like a de facto advertisement um, for a for-profit entity, especially because it runs on A2. So um, I try to keep that focus, the people that are featured in the one-on-one -on -one series being, you know, people who are doing nonprofit work um, or just something more altruistic for the community. And so like for one example, I was putting together the event listings a couple years ago and I ran across like a meeting for this community group that was specifically for trans youth of color in North County. And I was like, huh, I wonder if we've 
already written about this, so I'm checking the archives. We hadn't written about it. So I reached out to the woman who started it. Um, and it was fairly new. It was a fairly new organization, but she had already been getting kind of this huge response and reception and like kids showing up. And she had started it because um, her son, she has a trans son um, who was not able to find other trans youth of color to, um, you know, connect with and, and develop a relationship with and feel safe around. And there were other parents like that who were struggling too, um, to just find community where they were safe just being themselves. So yeah, I, I end up just kind of looking all over the place for people within the county um, who are doing things like that, or, or I'll dig into like, that event sounds interesting, who's behind it? to see if they would be a fit for that space. I love it. Um, first of all, that's a really powerful story, but thank you for the tip on finding stories. <laughs> I'm also gonna go comb through <laughs> event listings. Um, you kind of answered my second question, which is just like, what are some that stand out to you? But I guess, um, you know, doing this for as long as you've done it and speaking to as many people as you have, like, what are some takeaways from you? You know, what do you just learn about people through, through talking to so many at such sort of a, an intimate level? You know, it sort of restores my my cynical, jaded faith in humanity a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I think especially in the field that we are in, we tend to see a lot of what mostly feels like the uglier side of like human interaction, um, especially being on the receiving end of people's opinions about our work. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Just mm -hmm. Usually very um, passionate and heated. Uh, and so it had been very easy for me to get to a place of like, you know, a common phrase. I hate people. People say that all the time. I can't stand people. I hate people. Um, but this series and talking to so many different people, right, from like different identity groups, different um, class groups, like they have different passions, but they all have this desire in common to just try and be a good person and they're very invested in helping other people. And from what I can tell, you know, obviously like I don't know them that well, but from what I can tell, it seems like it comes from a really good place. I'm not gonna say that there have not been times that I've been wrong. <laughs> there have been a couple instances where I was like, ooh, like after the fact, you know, the story would run and then a few months later, the person is being questioned or maybe indicted. Like that's <laughs> happened a handful of times, but Yikes. out of probably the five years I've done it, it, like I can count on one hand, which is inevitable, right? Because you can't know everything about everybody. So even though some of the work that those people were doing was good, there were other areas that were not so great. Um, but for the most part, yeah, they seem to kind of latch on to something that's important to them. Um, whether it's something like food justice or supporting the LGBT community or, um, you know, dismantling systemic racism, like they find something that's meaningful to them and then they are investing a lot of time and energy and resources into trying to change the system to make it better and more equitable for the people who have the least and who tend to suffer the most. 
That's really cool. And obviously a theme in your work, I mean, some of the topics you just mentioned remind me of your social justice column, which just looking at your recent recent ones, you've talked about anti-Asian hate, you've talked about uh, LGBTQ rights, you've talked about decriminalizing drugs. I mean, it's all across the board. Yeah. But what is your goal with that column? The goal with that column um, was partly inspired just by my experiences at work um, with, just to be frank, a lot of questions at, at every place that I've worked at, not just this one, just a lot of questions that got very annoying to me that like, <laughs> you know, people would, yeah, people would feel like, because I'm Black, I can answer every question or be involved in every conversation about anything racist that occurred or um, anything that they don't understand, even having people start off their conversation with, don't get offended, but okay, so you're about to say something <laughs> offensive, got it. Um, and that just was so exhausting for me and becoming infuriating. So when this column was presented to me that um, I could essentially do whatever I wanted with it, at least that's the impression I was left with. I don't, maybe I'll end up getting corrected on that later, but um, I just was thinking about, okay, these issues come up. A lot of these social is justice issues will come up even in the one-on-one -on -one series. And I'm having to explain a lot of things to, to colleagues about like, you know, please avoid this kind of language when this person comes in, you know, for whatever reason or um, in the editing process, you know, I'm saying, no, we, this person is non-binary. And so these are their pronouns. And although the very old grammatical rules don't align with the way the pronouns are used, they need to stay that way because that's a big deal. So those kind of explanations and conversations had to happen on a fairly regular basis. So I just felt like, okay, I do my best to educate myself as much as I can, but even then I really understand that I have a very surface level knowledge of these things. I haven't spent years researching, studying these topics. I, I do what I can um, in the short amount of time that I have, but I just felt like, let me just take the issues that do come up in the news that wind up being topics of conversation at work and talk to people who've spent years doing work on those particular subjects, whether it's like academic research, whether it's advocacy work, whether it's policy and legislation, like these are the people who know the most about it. So I'll talk to them so that they can offer kind of, it's supposed to serve as like an introductory explanation of an issue, what it is, why it matters, what it means to the people who are affected by it, to just try and help give people an understanding of some of these larger things that are, are going on around them that I notice people will have like a knee jerk reaction toward or against, right? With the example of pronouns and, and people, um, you know, wanting to be resistant about using someone's preferred pronouns. And so for me, it just felt like, okay, well then let's talk about why that matters to the group who is requesting the use of these pronouns or um, I can specifically think about um, when Chadwick Boseman passed away, um, the conversations that I was seeing online, like on, on Twitter and Facebook and stuff were about um, how a few months before that, he was, I guess on Instagram live or something like that to discuss, I can't remember the topic now, but people were making a lot of comments about his appearance because he had lost so much weight. 
And he then like deleted photos and didn't go back on camera. And then months later we find out he had been sick and suffering and struggling. So there were conversations happening about how, you know, basically like you need to stop commenting on people's appearances because you don't know what they're going through and they don't owe you an explanation, you know, about how they look. Um, and I ended up speaking to someone who is, um, she is disabled and she's also like a disability rights advocate um, who has a, a very large following on Twitter. And she's also a black woman. So I was specifically talking to her for that column about all of the discussion around his appearance and how that was linked to his illness and how people who um, are going through illness or have a disability uh, have to deal with a lot of those kind of comments and intrusive questions and conversations and what that means um, in terms of like their they're being safe emotionally and physically around able-bodied people um, and, and in like an able-bodied uh, majority kind of community or culture. Um, so that's something that turned into a column is just, I, I try to pay attention to those conversations that are happening online because those are real people talking about that. So when it ends up trending, it's, you know, obviously, okay, a lot of people are talking about this. It might be a good idea to find somebody who is really educated and is an authority on this topic to talk about this particular discussion that's happening out in the world in real time. I read on your bio that you're a Chula Vista native. And so growing up here, covering the topics that you do, how have you seen San Diego um, grow in a social justice perspective over the years? You know, like where are you impressed or where is it still lacking? And you're making a face. What does that face mean? <laughs> it's a good thing we're not on video. Um, <laughs> Oh, that is a is a tricky question, and I I'm it's not going to be a a popular answer. I, I will tell you that me growing up here, I was always very aware that I was in the minority as a black girl, and I was always um, made. How do I put this? People who are not black definitely made a point of reminding me that I was black and that I was in the minority. And so growing up here, I just couldn't wait to leave. Like I couldn't wait to get out of San Diego. Um, and I did. Uh, and then when I came back, you know, I figured, well, I had been gone for probably 10 years or so before I came back thinking, oh, you know, I'm sure it's not like it was. It was, it was a lot of the same when I returned. <laughs> and so, so for me, just from that perspective as a black woman, um, I had not noticed it having gotten any better um, in terms of people making sure that they reminded me uh, about how they saw me um, mm -hmm. as a black woman, which was not necessarily positive. Now, that's just my experience. So, you know, I really can't speak for too many others, but I do know that I have plenty of friends who also are black women who also do not live here anymore <laughs> and, you know, got out of here and went, you know, somewhere down south or back east um, to live or even up in the Bay Area in California. Um, so covering the issues that I cover here now, I mean, I've been encouraged by seeing the shift, especially I would say probably in the last like wow, it's almost 10 years. Cause I was gonna say since probably around 2012 or so, kind of seeing this shift more toward um, people caring about 
systems, right? And how these different institutions and the way these systems work, how they um, can harm groups of people. And so seeing people more interested in doing that work in creating awareness around the harm caused by a lot of these systems and trying to figure out how to dismantle them and rebuild them in a more equitable way has been surprising to me in a good way. Um, so I guess I'm cautiously optimistic about where we can go. I think people tend to be off, tend to be surprised. Like if they're not from here and I've talked about my experience growing up in San Diego, they've been surprised because I think everyone sees California and thinks of it as this very liberal state. And I've had to tell people, yeah, but if you drill down to looking at numbers by like counties <laughs> in certain areas, that's not always necessarily true across the board. And then that shows up in how, you know, people are treated and how they treat each other. Hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. that answer your question, but yeah, no, it does answer my question. I am also one of those people who's surprised because I moved here about a year and a half ago, um, having all the same ideas about what San Diego would be like. And, and you know, in that time, one, I'm stunned by the black population, which is only 6%. Yep. Two, in doing, uh, you know, reporting on Black Lives Matter, I spoke to an 18-year-old uh, young woman from Lakeside who used the term sundown town for Santee. That shocked me. When I moved here, I heard people say Clanty, and I was like, oh, yeah. that's a joke. It's a bad joke. But I was like, but then, you know, uh, during the beginning of Black Lives Matter protests last year as yep. well, people showed up in KKK hoods. So I was like, oh, none of this is a joke. Mm -hmm. um, it really does surprise me about that region. So I can see that we have work to do. I also think that there are incredible things. You know, I think you see um, a lot of acceptance and unity, especially, you know, around the sort of downtown area. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely work to be done. Yeah, there are pockets where some of those pockets remain the same. Like as a kid in the early 90s, I remember hearing my parents, <clears throat> excuse me, talk about like, no, don't, you're not going to Fallbrook, you know, like you're not going out there by yourself and certainly not after dark. No, you're not going mm -hmm. to Santee, like where, nope. And, and, you know, I didn't really understand all of the whys, but I, you know, remember phrases like, the clan, you know, and, and so I knew as a kid, like, okay, those are areas I'm not supposed to go to. Um, and I had that kind of awareness, which is, which was so bizarre to me having come from before we moved here, when I was a kid, we lived like outside New Orleans, you know, and places like that. And I had never experienced being called the N word as a child until we moved to San Diego. Wow. And then every time I went to a new school, I was called the N-word by some other kid. <laughs> and that had never happened before. So yeah, it's been, um, it, there has been a process of growth that has had to happen here. And I feel like in the last probably 10 years, at least in my experience, I've seen it starting to happen. So like I said, I, I try to be cautiously optimistic and not my typical cynical journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, clearly a lot of work to do, but like you said, maybe a little hope there. Mm -hmm. And and finally, you have a new podcast coming out. What can you tell us about that? So the new podcast is called Amplify and the purpose of it is much like the Sunday social justice column um, and the one-on-one -on -one series to amplify voices in the community um, and even beyond the community that are not often heard. So a lot of what will be happening is um, just going a little bit more in depth in some of the, the social justice topics. I have a lot of extra 
content uh, left over that we just typically don't have space for in print. Um, and that the people I'm speaking with, you know, really have a lot of knowledge and they really have a lot of just information and perspective to share, insight to share about those topics that I think is really helpful and valuable in helping to inform people to be able to just, for me, it's about being able to make an informed decision about, you know, where we stand in the position I'm going to take. So as opposed to, you know, just right off the bat, rejecting these, um, this understanding of gender, right, and, and being trans, um, having a more nuanced discussion with people who can speak to what that means with a lot of um, authority and research and information to back it up. And so the column, I mean, I'm sorry, the podcast will be going a bit more in depth where we weren't able to go in print um, in some of these conversations. And the same is true for the one-on-one -on -one series. There are questions that sometimes I, I will ask the person I'm interviewing, and then they come back with this like beautifully thoughtful and um, insightful response or multiple responses like that. And I'm like, good grief, I don't have space <laughs> to put this in. And people are missing out on things that I think that they would really enjoy hearing um, or, or get a lot out of. So that's the goal with the podcast. Awesome. Well, good problem to have. And it sounds like you've come up with a good solution. So I hope so. Fingers yeah. crossed. Can't wait to hear it. Lisa Dedrick, columnist at the UT, podcaster at the UT. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Christy. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and we'll be back tomorrow.